now. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Christian Thwaites of Brad Janikowski. Welcome to our monthly market uh, update webinar. I hope everyone can see the screen in front of me. Beautiful picture of Marin. And um, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm on the website on one side and Carolyn O'Neill's on the other. And uh, we'll open it up to questions. And I think questions could be, um, can be accessed through the web. So if you see a space for questions, just feel free to fire them up and uh, we'll answer them uh, as we go along or at the end. Um, well, uh, quite a lot has happened in the last month since we since we we last talked. Um, I think the biggest topic of the day is the inflation debate, which is essentially um, a, a tussle between uh, the the group that feels that the economy is on the mend, uh, that there are some inflation indicators out there, uh, that now we've had a big stimulus, which is likely to push some of those inflation boundaries a little further. Um, and another group which has been used to a decade and a half or actually more of inflation never really reaching the Fed's target of 2%, uh, an economy which has been operating under its capacity and therefore you know, has quite a, quite a lot of uh, headroom to expand without triggering inflation. Like a lot of these things, there's a lot of nuances to it. Uh, I don't want to sort of come out strongly on one side or the other. I do think the inflation uh, concern is a little bit... Um, uh, overdone at the moment, uh, but it's real. It's not to be uh, dismissed. Um, and of course, the market is uh, is is um, is debating this uh, as we speak. It's going to come up in both the fixed income markets and increasing the equity markets. Anyway, that's really the big uh, topic of the day, and that's a that's an improvement because for much of the last fifteen months, of course, we've been talking about this uh, absolute brick wall the economy. Uh, uh, ran into uh, over a year ago, where it essentially came to, you know, a full and immediate stop when we saw the biggest uh, decline in output um, and, and most sudden decline in output uh, we've ever seen, certainly, as, you know, in, uh, in 70, 80, 90 years. Um, the, the financial crisis, which, a bit, which was very broad, also very deep, um, you know, happened a little bit more slowly. Um, I would say that the damage done to the economy uh, by the uh, COVID lockdown, it doesn't compare to, this, to the damage done to the economy in the GFC. And it's taken, uh, it, it took you know, many, many years for employment to come back to the level that it was uh, pre-GFC, post-GFC, like seven or eight years. Um, and I think the output side um, never really got there in terms of regaining its momentum and on the trajectory it was before. There's a long, long fix for a very difficult problem. The COVID uh, uh, bounce back will be quick. And that's kind of our first point here, is that this lockdown has been incredibly hard on uh, a lot of people and people particularly in the consumer client uh, facing parts of the economy have been hit hardest in terms of job losses, uh, lower wages and dependency on unemployment benefits. But those parts of the economy should come back relatively quickly. And again, unlike almost every other traditional recession, there hasn't been a destruction of capital in the form of you know, excess borrowing, excess building, investment. Um, so none of these things you know, need to work their way out of the economy. It's just it's something where, as we mentioned before, demand was shut off like a valve. It'll come back relatively quickly and the snapback, uh, I think, will be relatively quickly. And we'll just see more of it as we go into Q2. Um, the stimulus which is in its balance between the House and the Senate, is now back with the House, should be signed within the next 48 hours, um, is, is unusual in that uh, it nearly all just puts extra cash and spending power into people's pockets. So there's the $1,400 uh, family credit, which, uh, which, which tails off. Um, so it's really going to the most uh, needy. And that's very unlike the tax cuts from 2019, which benefited the top 5%. Of, uh, of wage earners, this really does benefit the, the bulk of the wage earners who have been hurt most. So I think it's very well targeted. Uh, the other thing that's, um, uh, I think, uh, interesting about this one is that it puts in a child benefit allowance, which is actually quite, quite, um, quite generous. It's about $300 up to, per child up to a certain age. And then uh, there's about $3,600 per child that could come into people's um, um, income. And that's not dependent on having a job, which is which is good news in my view. It sort of puts a little bit more uh, spending power into uh, households that need it most. Uh, there are other parts of it which extend the unemployment benefits, which is good. And there is a 
very positive multiplier effect between unemployment benefits and the broader economy. So keeping as many people spending uh, as possible is a good thing. Um, the, other, the other thing that um, I, th I think this does is that uh, a lot of this cash will be saved. So I don't, that's one of the points I'll make further on down the road. Some of it will go towards, you know, forbearances of rent and other um, closure of, uh, you know, real estate that were forbeared up until this type of point. So a lot of it's going to be a transfer of money uh, from the government to an individual to then, you know, uh, uh, expenses that, uh, that were suspended essentially for, um, you know, for six months so, or nine months. That's not inflationary. That's just moving it from one pocket to another. Um, but there's a huge pent up demand for services. Um, you know, we hear lots of anecdotal evidence about uh, trips being booked for um, July, August. Um, I'm sure all of the traditional uh, tourist destinations are going to be pretty busy. Um, again, assuming the, the the lockdown sort of comes on, uh, comes on, uh, is is relaxed sort of at the same rate that it's uh, that we think it is. Some services don't come back. You don't go, go to you know five haircuts to make up for the five you missed, or uh, suddenly you know go out to a restaurant five times a night just suddenly to make up for all those you missed. But a lot of them will be where people will feel that they can spend again. Uh, and again, there's a huge amount of savings to to go into those industries. Um, you've got 60 million people vaccinated. I think the number of vaccinations is about 70, but a lot of them have the two-shot ones. So uh, the number vaccinated is still a, a little bit lower. We have one of the highest, I think the highest vaccination rate in absolute terms in the world, for sure. And per, per capita, it's pretty strong by now. So that seems to be happening. I'll show, you know, your experiences at the local level may differ, but, uh, but, uh, uh, but at, the, at the national level, these vaccines are getting to where they need it. Um, again, since we've uh, last spoke in the early March, the bond market has continued to sell off, not drastically. Um, the rates have slowly crept up from about 1% to 1.5%. That's um, It has not been a disorderly market, which I think is what the Fed would be worried about. Two of the Fed governors, Jay Powell, of course, the chairman and Leo Brennan, very smart about these things, and a couple of others, um, have said that they don't they they see this they they've taken note of it and essentially what they're saying is this isn't disorderly this isn't a uh, a, cre uh, a liquidity crisis um so they don't see any need to uh, to up the bond buying or you know do more uh, sort of verbal intervention and, and forward guidance and for them i think it's just you know for right now it's still pedal to the metal of low rates. Um, we're not anticipating a Fed funds increase until 2022. Uh, they might announce some tapering uh, at the end of 2021, depending on how the economy is going. That just means they'll be like buying less treasuries and mortgage banks than they are now. Um, but I don't think they're about to make the monetary conditions uh, uh, much tighter. So there's some inflation risk for sure. Uh, we're going to see it in the short term, uh, just because we're, uh, for the simple reason I've mentioned this in the blog a few times, you've had things like uh, oil and energy and some metal stocks bounce back from where they were a year ago. We're kind of on the 12 month anniversary when one of the oil futures notoriously traded negative um, and oil spot oil was about 10, 11, 12 dollars. Now it's 50, 60. So that passes through in gasoline prices, heating prices, diesel prices, aviation fuel doesn't really matter anymore. Uh, because they're not using it, but um, but all those kind of get 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 passed through, and the base effect from low prices twelve months ago to slightly higher prices now will happen. We had almost negative inflation for five months last year, starting in March, ending in the end of the summer. So there will be some year-over-year -year inflation numbers. You'll see about it. You know, Bloomberg will talk about it. A lot of talking heads will say, "Ah, oh, there we go. I told you inflation was coming back," but it's really not. It's uh, it's um, it's it's just a, a bounce back from from relatively low levels. You need a few months to see whether or not the underlying core inflation is moving up rapidly. Risk assets have been sideways now, and I've got to say, for one for one perspective, I'm quite pleased because you know things have gotten you know way ahead of themselves. Uh, we all know what the large uh, tech stocks did last year. Um, I mean, just to give you an example, uh, I, before I came on, I was looking at the two largest stocks in the following sectors: tech communication services, um, and consumer discretionaries. So those six stocks are Apple, Microsoft, Google, Facebook, Amazon, and Tesla, which wasn't even in the S&P 500 up until November. You throw the market caps of those together, you're at $8 trillion uh, out of a market cap of 32. So whatever that is, you know, um, 
um, a lot. It's, it's about um, nine, nine, 10, 10, 15, 20% of the market, something like that, six companies. But you take the six biggest companies in the financial, industrial, and energy sectors. And so interesting enough, there's uh, JP Morgan, Bank of America, Honeywell, Union Pacific, Exxon, and Chevron. Uh, and those add up to 1.5 trillion. So you know, you got the six, and they employ more people than the others uh, by quite a bit. But, uh, but that just gives you an, an example. The six biggest in the big sectors that have been running, nearly 8 trillion. The six biggest in the sectors that haven't been running, one and a half. So um, there's still a lot of catching up to do. Um, and I think some of the tech stocks and some of those names I mentioned, you know, ran way ahead of themselves. So we are kind of seeing a sideways drift for now. The important thing is we're seeing more market and sector rotation. That's good. It means that people aren't abandoning the market. They're just trying to value, find value in other places. Um, and uh, I think that, you know, some excess needs to be taken out of the system. And I'll mention those by name uh, later on. Okay, um, just to kind of take through what, what I'm sure you've been following in the news. This is borrowed from our friends at uh, Pantheon Economics, but there it is. The, uh, the, the blue line is really what I look at, um, which is coming way down. So this is the number of uh, new firm cases uh, per day. Interestingly, the COVID tracking projects, CTP or whatever it's called, uh, which came up last year, uh, has stopped publishing numbers um, as of uh, March of 7th. And I don't think that they run out of funding or anything else like that. I think they see that the worst is behind them. So now we get our cases, case information from you know, John Hopkins and the World Health and a few other places. They have to kind of be amalgamated. But you know, you can see definitely the number of cases has come down uh, a lot. Uh, remember, we hit 250,000 a day. Uh, you can see up in the top, top number up here uh, back in December. Things look pretty bleak. Um, remember, vaccination day was November the 11th, two days after the election. Uh, and then so since then, the number of cases, uh, you know, have come down you know, due to that second or third lockdown. So that definitely seems to be, uh, you know, moving in the uh, right direction. And this looks good, too. Um, the, the number of uh, uh, vaccinations, uh, this was 1.2 million a year ago, uh, sorry, a month ago. Uh, we're now at nearly 18 million. And it was 9% of the population, and it was uh, 16, 16%. Um, so we're certainly kind of moving ahead well on that. And I expect this number here was a little bit of, this was the Texas outage and, uh, and the storm outage in, um, in the Northeast. So that, that's the dip there. And then it suddenly started to come back uh, quite solidly uh, in the last few weeks. So that seems to be you know, going, going well. Um, let's have a look too at where we were with the um, uh, back in January. This was the dreaded third wave. You know, this was the first one, second one in mid-summer, then this third really terrible one, sort of in the in November, December time. Uh, we were pulling away nicely from the rest of the world here in terms of at least there's a number of uh, cases per hundred thousand. So this was kind of you know rapidly getting out of control. Um, now you uh, look at these numbers and. Um, you know, there's a big drop. And as the United States, it's kind of fallen through the Italy uh, and France and European level. Uh, as I said, we're at about, on a seven day moving average, we seem to be around about 20, 30,000, uh, to 30, sorry, 20 or 30 per 100,000. So that's the one to measure. In absolute numbers, it's about 40,000, but this is 20, 30 per 100,000 of the population. So it's definitely moving. You know, Germany uh, is kind of flatlining. And I think, uh, this little it's hidden here behind the European Union, Italy, but you can see this kind of sideways. That's the winter storms. That's the Texas outage, uh, and now it's begun to decline again. So that's all good news. Uh, it's all kind of moving in the right direction. I think I read somewhere we had the kind of worst take on of the of COVID and sort of worst case experience, but we got one of the better vaccination programs. And then uh, you know uh, maybe it's a little. Tempting fate to say it's the final stretch, but uh, you know California's down there at the bottom. Remember these big spikes? This was South Dakota. The, you know, a month, uh, a little bit roundabout here was the famous Sturgis rally, rally which uh, which, which um, infiltrated a lot of states in the Upper Midwest, uh, Wisconsin, and the two Dakotas. Uh, I've taken them off right now because they're not that important any anymore because their numbers are down and the populations aren't that big. Uh, but anyway, the big states here are obviously, you know, moving, moving down. 
Uh, yes, I know Texas has probably moved a little bit too early on the uh, mask and shutdown stuff, but um, they do things differently now. This is really the story of the month where, you know, a month ago we met and the yield curve. So this is just taking, you know, yields from six months, almost zero, all the way out to 30 years, uh, just under 2% a month ago. And this whole curve, ignore the blue one for a minute. This, this I think it's yellow. I'm a bit colorblind, could be green. But anyway, this, this lighter one at the top has all moved up. And the, 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 the news has especially been in the 10-year number, which is about one, one, one point. Uh, 2% uh, and is now about 1.55%. So it's definitely moved up. That's been the big story. Um, you'll notice that down here under two to three years, it hasn't really moved much. While we've had a post-pandemic high of the 10-year treasury at about 1.5%, the two-year treasury continues to hover around record lows, about 11 basis points. And the reason for that is uh, there's a lot of demand for short-term money, but most importantly, the Fed is holding things tight at the lower end of the market. Uh, they're, they're buying a lot of this stuff, but more importantly, there's a limit to how far, far the uh, two-year treasury can go when the Fed fund rate is locked in at zero. So this is what you'd expect um, in a kind of a healthy economy, all things being equal, a steeper yield curve is better. Not always, but that's kind of a decent rule of thumb that won't let you down too many times. Um, and we've seen the, the, uh, the yield curve steep, steepen uh, quite a bit in the last month. Now, again, this is a little bit of the economy is coming back, it's growthier, that's more positive versus inflation's coming back and bond investors are demanding a, uh, a yield uh, premium in order to protect themselves against inflation. Yeah. They're not mutually exclusive. So, uh, you know, obviously I lean to more towards the growth side of it. And, uh, you know, if we didn't see any move in the 10 year trade in the, in the yield curve at all, this kind of just stuck around here, would tell me that we hadn't got things right. You know, that the, um, uh, the economy still had capacity to grow and we weren't providing enough for fuel and auction to help it grow. Uh, but that's been the big move in the 10-year uh, rate. But uh, before we get too concerned about that, I just point out, this is the United States one. Um, I put the numbers in there. They're all mushed together at the bottom here. But as you can see, it takes almost two years before you get to 14 basis points. And here's the 10-year uh, at 1.6 yesterday, I think it was. Might have been today. Uh, yes, March 9th. And then the two-year, the 30-year at 2.29. So that's is, you know, all things being equal, a, a healthy yield curve. You're paying more to go further out in the yield. This, by contrast, the next one down, the United Kingdom is a very uh, is a well, it's a very unhealthy yield curve because you've got some inversion going on there. And I suspect that's due to the scarcity of the 50-year bond. Um, but then you look at these other guys, the the Germany, Switzerland, um, and Japan yield curves, and so this one, this one, and this one, and they're barely registering positive rates. I mean, it, with Switzerland, you never get a positive rate on your bond. Even if you go out to 30 years, you're still getting negative rates. With Germany, you have to get almost 20 years before you get a positive rate. My point about this is two things. One is that, you know, Japan, Germany, and Switzerland, let's say Germany is a pretty good proxy for the EU, not all EU borrowers can borrow as, as well as Germany, that's for sure. But, you know, but, but Germany's econ economic growth is, uh, is inextricably intertwined with the EU. So you kind of got the big three economic blocks of, sorry, to you know, J Japan, which throws in a bit of Asia because of who it exports to, uh, Germany and Switzerland representing the core of Europe. And those bond rates are considerably lower. Now, I think that's because their inflation uh, uh, um, outlook is is more deflationary than not. That's not usually a good sign. Um, and their growth out, outlook is quite a bit lower as well. Um, so until we see these others move up, I think the, uh, the, 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 the United States yield curve, especially the 10-year treasury, won't go to enormous rates just because um, people, all these guys are natural buyers of US treasuries. And the more they see this yield differential, um, positive in favor of the US, the more they're likely to buy it and start bringing it down again. So, in a in a world of still low rates, the US is is still quite quite a, quite a ways ahead, and I think that indicates the better growth prospects that we've got in the US um, over the next um, twelve months. Um, I've thrown this uh, chart up a few times. This is a result of okay, you know, when the kind of perennial question comes up, when is the Fed likely to to rise rates? And essentially, the Fed has been saying. Every time they've been asked this for the last three months is essentially a polite version of saying, 
don't ask. Uh, they're looking at uh, inflation. And while inflation is re recording, you know, uh, one and a half, one point seven percent in a good month, they're not even going to talk about a time timeline for this. Um, and what they did last August, which I mentioned before, I think it's very important. This because they did slightly change uh, the emphasis on the Fed's dual mandate from being uh, two percent inflation, low inflation, to full employment, and they've kept that full employment, but they've but they've expanded it to other sectors of the economy. They talked about um, employment amongst lower paid, among low unemployment amongst. Um, minorities. Uh, and uh, so they've sort of broadened that almost into a kind of a social um, goal. Um, and at the same time, they said they would allow inflation to run. Now, they didn't say by how much or for how long, but over the 2% target. So the days of, oh my gosh, becoming cause 2%, Fred's, Fed's going to slam on the brakes are over. So at least it's, that's, that's what they're telling us. And then I think that's likely to be, to be the case. So these are the only you know, four times in the last 70 years where uh, the, these these goals of about unemployment at 4%, which they didn't mention by name, but seems to be the one which, they, um, which they're favoring as a, as a definition of full employment and the inflation at 2%, which they did name. So they put a number on one, but not on the other. Uh, the only times they've converged is, is these times. And look at, we, look at that today. The last employment number from last Friday was 6.2%. The latest inflation number is one3 we get another print tomorrow. I don't think it's going to be much more than that. Uh, so it's a long ways before we see the Fed likely to act. Now, uh, without sort of, you know, overemphasizing the case that inflation is a temporary worry, you know, I will acknowledge that it's, it's, it's out there and it's not being imagined by the people who see it in a more pessimistic light than we do. But uh, this is the one which the last couple of weeks got people a bit nervous. And this is the ISM's Institute of Supply Management is a survey, um, and they ask uh, people in the manufacturing and the non-manufacturing, which is really just the services, the, or the services economy, uh, how they see prices. Um, so this could be for a manufacturer, it's the cost of their cost of their steel. You know, it's the prices which they're paying, not the prices which they're um, asking for. Um, and also. You know, if you're in the services economy, you're a constructor and you've got to buy lumber, you know, it's again, it's asking prices like, you know, what are you seeing in those prices? Now, these numbers are pretty high. Um, this is not a, doesn't mean they expect 86% inflation, it's just that 86% of people said they think uh, uh, prices are, are going to go up and 71% here. And that's been high before. Um, and in most of these cases, it's come down pretty quickly. And if I tracked an inflation number under here, there wouldn't necessarily be much correlation between what these guys are paying and what they're um, then feeding through in final demand prices. In other words, some of these prices they might absorb by higher productivity or they might switch materials or they might just have lower margins. Um, so it's not a direct one for one. But I do point it out because it is quite a big jump from where we were you know, a year ago where things were very deflationary and now it's moving up. Um, so again, this is this is what the this is what the group which deals that you know inflation is going to be a a rather tricky problem uh, would would point to, and it's not not without merit. The question is that does it pass through to the broader general economy? Um, the other one is commodities. I've mentioned oil. Similar story in copper, nickel, aluminum, aluminium. Uh, you know, these type of base metal prices, also silver, tends to be in there. Uh, we've kind of put a lot of this um, number here, 17.92, is the is kind of a basket of different type of commodities. Um, so it represents the metals as well as uh, energy, as well as food. So uh, this is year over year, it's up 17%. Here we are with this core inflation at 1.4%. Um, yeah, sometimes that goes up. You know, like here is a good example in 2008, so a big spike, the commodity index was up. 40%, that was all to do with uh, copper right after the uh, great crash and the big demand from China. Did it feel feed through to inflation? No, not really. I mean, inflation took a dive down and a small climb up. So again, you have to be careful to saying, well, just because we're seeing inflation in some of those input prices from the chart before and from the commodity side, now, will that lead to greater increases in our day-to-day -day price inflation? And the answer is a little mixed as from this slide. So, um, but again, kind of weighing all these together, you know, what have we got so far? We've got some input prices, we've got some commodity prices that are going up, 
Does it lead to broader, wider, deeper inflation? Uh, that remains to be seen. I look at this one as probably the most important indicator. It's really, are, are wages going up? This top one is the hourly wages, the 5.2%. So you look at that and you go, my God, you know, it really kicked up. Great, 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 uh, great thing to happen. You know, you're in work and your hourly wages went up 5%. But as I mentioned a couple of times before, this is really a sleight of hand statistical illusion uh, because it's, show, it's the hourly wages we get from the unemployment report and the people who um, lost their jobs the most were in industries which paid much lower average hourly earnings. The, uh, the average weekly earnings the number was about $1,000 on average. And the people who lost their job in things like the um, uh, travel and leisure sector earned about 350. So, you know, a lot less. So take them out of the pool and it looks like everyone else has had a pay rise. So this one is not worth looking at. Um, and in fact, that's going to go negative in the next few months as more of those people come back into the workforce. These are the ones to look at which is unfortunately come out quarterly. Um, but this really shows that, you know, what the, the employers are paying, both with benefits included and, and wages. And they're sort of, you know, there they are, sort of 2.6%, uh, you know, lower than they were a decade ago, a little bit higher than they were five or six years ago. But, you know, a move from one and a half to two and a half isn't really enough to, um, to uh you know, start triggering uh, a lot of inflation. But so if these start moving, then I'd be more concerned about inflation. And they're not the most um, uh, timely of statistics, but I think, you know, the fact that we have to wait for them is a good thing. Otherwise, you know, we, we react on every, every single data point. But so far, this is showing that employment costs, costs are low and are staying low. Um, the small business sector, the NFIB, National Federation of Independent Businesses, very important. Um, this company is, a, um, is, is an industry which represents companies with less than, I think, 200 employees. We remember that the US workforce, I think 40% of them are, are employed by companies with less than 50 people. So how these people feel, how this NFIB feels about the future, well, we can look at the latest data and says, what's your outlook for expansion in the next three months? and what's your outlook for compensation plans in the next three months, we've got very, very low numbers here. You know, people are, you know, back in the, uh, you know, Trump uh, tax um, uh, cut time, you know, they were expecting a big expansion there, then that number got up to about 35%, uh, but now it's kind of way down and kind of similar to what it was, um, gosh, you know, seven years ago. Uh, I don't, I, I, I think uh, if you, if you saw uh, an inflationary uh, pressure, you'd see the NFIB are usually the first off, off the bat to talk about, well, we expect to have to pay people more in the next three or four months. So far, that's not signaling that at all. And the other one is the deficits. Uh, I mean, there's no doubt the deficits are going to get big. And I think I saw a, um, the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, came out with something the other day, which is that, that the uh, national debt will be 200% of GDP by 2030 or 40 or something like that. Uh, good headline. It doesn't really, doesn't really uh, concern, uh, concern myself or the bond rate or bond market, I think, more importantly, because uh, the size of the deficit is somewhat important, but how much you pay on the interest on the deficit is much more important. Uh, and you can see that with current interest rates, I mean, uh, you know, in, in back in 88, when people were really fussing about the twin deficits a lot. That was uh, where you saw the national debt clock established and everything. We were paying 5% of GDP and $500 billion in interest payments alone. Uh, now that number's down, way down here. So, um, you know, the, the, the net interest payments on the national debt as a the GDP are very low. That's a function of having low interest rates until, until we really get a, you know, an economy operating at fuller capacity then we can kind of address the deficit issue. But for now, it's not really putting any pressure on, uh, on bonds or interest rates or the ability for the government to fund other parts uh, of, its, um, uh, of its expenditure. Uh, but it, it's out there as a background, and I'm sure it'll continue to come up every now and then. Uh, but I don't think from a macroeconomic point of view, it's a particularly big issue right now. Now, we've got to get on to the jobs market, because this is the thing that obviously got hit the worst uh, in um, 
in the in the, in spring of last year. Uh, that's where we had up here sort of like 22 million job losses. Uh, weekly claims skyrocketed from this 220,000 level to six seven million. The shorter answer is this, and I write about this every week: is until this clears up, until we're at the point where we can say we're back to a normalized level of weekly claims, and I think that's got to be at least below 300,000, then this is something worth tracking uh, very, very closely. Now, the, the data isn't always fully up to date, and they revise quite a bit, uh, but this is essentially the number of people who sign on for unemployment in a week, and they come out every Thursday morning, and they're a week old. Um, and there's some messing around with double counting, and some states are more accurate than others and some people sign on twice by mistake um, and some people come in unemployed go back to work sign on again but anyway the numbers have gotten slightly better and what we're looking for here um, is for this number to slowly it's 745 last week is start to edge down but it'd be um, I think we're looking for like 400,000 by May or June this number's got a got to come down um, if we're going to have a, a more robust uh, employment market. So that's still not there yet. And then in the payrolls, uh, again, this is the 22 million, these big two negative numbers here. At the back end of last year, this was the second wave where we were at, um, you can't really see the numbers here because I've had to adjust the scale so much, but we've had, you can see it in the, in the bars, um, we had three months of pretty awful numbers, but they did recover last month, um, and there shouldn't be too much noise in that data. Uh, they might even be a little, the real numbers might be a little bit you know, higher, again, given, um, given some seasonal adjustments and what went on with uh, all of the storms. Um, so this number should start climbing up over the next uh, few months by quite a bit, you know, like 400, 500,000. We might even get closer to seven, 800,000 in a month or two. So this is something which is a cataclysmic drop, somewhat of a gain, a disappointing uh, you know, tail off of gains uh, in the end of 2020 uh, 20 into 2021, and then slowly this should start climbing. Uh, the unemployment rate's down here at 6.2%, but ignore that for the minute because it's, it's undercounting the number of people unemployed. The GDP numbers, um, I'll just flip to this one, which is the most useful one. So, you know, we saw this big Decline here, negative five, negative 30, then up 33. And the fourth quarter came in at four. And the expectations right now for the current quarter to be at eight. You know, uh, so we're definitely expecting things in Q1 2021 to be better than fourth quarter 2020 because you know, more things are opening. We're dealing with it a lot better. So this is good for the year as a whole. A bit difficult to tell how quickly it will snap back, but I think we could be looking at a, you know, eight. 10% uh, number of GDP for the year as a whole. That'll sort of get us back to the starting point, which is uh, which is good. But these uh, these 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 GDP now estimates are a bit volatile because they kind of work them off data points that come out through the quarter. Um, but yeah, eventually, by the end of the quarter, the Atlanta Fed's pretty much uh, in line with with what the real GDP numbers are. So we've only got two more weeks left of the current quarter and. They, uh, unless they have a big revision down, which I don't think it will, they will. We're looking at somewhere between the six to eight percent growth, and that's pretty much baked into prices right now. Consumers continue to save. I mean, a lot of the money that was sent in the first wave went into personal savings rate. This is, uh, you know, normal savings rate back here was about a trillion dollars in, and that's just savings accounts normally. You know, so it's one away from checking accounts, but it's. Um, uh, it's fairly liquid acids. It's not tied up in illiquid securities and things like that. Uh, and that's obviously rocketed up to as high as six trillion. Some of it's been spent down. It's about four trillion now. It'll go up again as a result of the current stimulus, which will, you know, I think the first check should be going out. Um, gosh, uh, hopefully within about two weeks. But you can see the uh, the savings rate. This is a normal savings rate, somewhere between about five to six percent. Um, uh, it shot up to 35% and now it's back at 20. So this, this is important to remember that this, this number will go up because of the new stimulus check rounds coming out. And this all represents pent up spending. This is, people are not gonna keep saving at a 20% savings rate. Um, you know, they just don't do that if they're feeling com more confident about the world. And these big cash balances, they're gonna be headed towards uh, 
spending. Uh, I mean, not all of it, of course, but, um, but there's an awful lot of firepower out there. Uh, housing and autos, same story, it's done really well. Uh, he's just housing starts. I usually look at uh, housing starts, existing home sales and new home sales. They all tell pretty much the same story, which is that these have held up pretty well. Um, that the peak number was uh, was um, was uh, December. If you take this further back, this is still we had we had housing starts of 2.2 million in 2004, five, six prior to the crash. It doesn't need to be that high again, as many of you know. That was a very speculative bubble in housing, which is, which is, uh, you know, take, took a long time to work its way out. This is a kind of a more normal rate. Uh, and it's been pretty strong. You know, there's, uh, it's, it's stayed well demand for housing for all the reasons we've talked about the changes in habit from working from home, etc. There's still the, the housing demand is still pretty high and the supply is still pretty low. Um, this is the S&P. So you can see at the top there, the, the we've had this little correction. We went from about 3,900 to whatever it is today, 30, uh, this was a day ago, 3,800. Um, this dividends and earnings number is, uh, is on the dividends number is slightly better than when we met a month ago. In other words, companies came through with marginally, I'm really talking 40 cents on $59, but slightly better uh, dividends per share uh, than, than the prior month. And that you know, after taking a, a tick down last year is sort of edging up nicely. I expect that to sort of continue to rise. And then the uh, earnings per share, uh, you know, obviously we, we, we saw the decline in that, but more important than that is what's the outlook and a lot of the um, forecasted outlook and, and, and guidance that we saw from the S&P 500 companies was very positive. So that continues to be pretty good. Um, these are the rolling year numbers, which I'll, I'll, I'll go over these. I'll skip over that one for now. But um, this is just to give you an idea how fast this bull market has come. So we just kind of took a look at some of the stats that said, um, what's the, uh, I can't really imagine. Yeah, what's the S&P 500 return over 11 months from its trough? Uh, in other words, when the market hits bottom, what does it do over the next 11 months? It just took 11 months because we're 11 months away from when it started to ramp up. Um, here's a big uh, recovery back in 1932. This is just the second biggest one in that time. So a lot, a lot of a lot of the market has come on very quickly, and we we saw that with the kind of you know the winner take all the work from home stocks, which are you know giant stocks. Um, so the point is that we made a lot of money very quickly. A sideways uh, halt in the market, I think, is something uh, greatly to be desired, just to kind of take some froth out of the thing. Um, Unfortunately, markets don't always correct by going sideways, so we'll see some things come down. Uh, but we've made an awful lot of money in a short space of time, and I think before we don't want to get into the world of 1999, uh, where things just get crazily out of hand, uh, or 2007, 2008. I don't think we're there across the market. There are some speculative bubbles. Um, I should be able to chat about those in a minute, but just to remind us how fast we've come. So you know, it's okay to have. Uh, a sideways correction or, or rest, if you like. Um, just a reminder of what happens in 2020. It was the top five story, top, top five stocks from January through September up 43%, which is unbelievable how big those companies were. I think they were 30% of the index or something. And then uh, the rest of the world was really not much of interest. The uh, um, emerging markets, small and mid cap, small cap lost a lot of money, mid cap. Emerging market was pretty much sideways, and and mid cap was down about ten percent. And boy, have things turned around. You know, small cap since December, the middle of December, um, is up twenty one percent. Mid cap up twelve. Emerging market up six. And then, as you'd expect, the top five have taken a rest, so they're down two and a half percent. But this is this is the kind of the healthy thing which we're talking about earlier. This is kind of rotation, not just within the market from one sector to another one industry to another or one kind of value sector or uh, to one to from one one growth sector to another value sector. This is across different size market caps, which I think is very healthy because the more it spreads out, the more wider the benefits of the recovery are going to be. So small caps are very sensitive to uh, broad economic growth. And, um, and the fact that they've come back so strongly is a good indication that people feel that this, uh, this recovery is real and it's going to hit more than just the Top guys. Um, I'll leave that one for now. 
Um, there has been some talk about value versus growth, and uh, we've seen that since uh, January. This is, I think, yeah, year to date. Uh, now, I always have a bit of a problem with the value versus growth. I don't have a problem defining it and exactly what people mean by it, but I think it, it's, it, its definitional changes have become a little warped over the last few years. But basically, if you're talking about value, you're talking about today, the energy world and the financial world. Um, financials tend to trade cheaply on a price to book value for good reasons. Don't need to go into those yet, but they also have relatively decent yields and Investors don't view them as growth stocks, so they tend not to have very challenging multiples. On the energy side, they tend to, again, uh, have pretty low uh, earnings multiples and big fat yields. You know, so the Exxon, Chevron, I mentioned earlier on, four or five percent yields. So those have come back into fashion. Um, here we are. Let's see. Value stocks are up about eight percent. Growth stocks are down about four uh, percent. So we've seen a big uh, uh, outperformance of value from growth, especially from around about the beginning of February. Now, longer term, it's a very different story. You know, if you kind of, there are times when value does well back here in 06, but if you put a dollar into value versus value or growth um, back in 91, you'd be, you know, almost double the amount of money you made in value. But I think the, um, the, the point I take away from this is, yes, the market is ex expanding out a little bit. Uh, markets are a little bit more, um, uh, recognizing that that you know some some sectors have been left behind, uh, growth uh, stocks have been bid up so high that now people are looking around and saying, well, maybe with higher interest rates, uh, which is important for financials, or the big broader economy uh, getting getting more uplift from it and spreading out a little bit, maybe these value stocks are going to bring some of their own growth to the table. And I think that's 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 what's going on. So. The last four or five years, you just watch Exxon go sideways as everybody, you know, the demand for everything they make just kind of came down. Now I think that you know, with the economy broadening out, that kind of stock can see you know a broader demand for its products at higher prices. So they kind of take on a little bit of a, a growth um, uh, example. Now I did mention that there are you know some excesses in the market. And the ones I kind of looked at is I think the IPO market got slightly bonkers, you know, whatever your views are on Airbnb and Uber and Lyft and mm, DoorDash and a few others. Uh, these are, uh, particularly those last three, are really dependent on, have, have, have made, don't make any money, um, and they're very dependent on the abundance of cheap labor. I mean, you think about DoorDash, that's not exactly a job you know, a, a great career for people. Same with Lyft, same with Uber. So they've, they've done well uh, when there's plenty of uh, employment around. Now, if employment gets tighter, I think those companies are going to be toast just because they'll have to pay much higher rates to, to keep, the, keep the thing going. So, but, but, but for now, up until very recently, you know, these names came on the market that have been around for 10 years or more. They were the so-called unicorns. They were worth, a, you know, a billion dollars and still with the VC hands, and they came to the market and they did very well. Um, the other one is the SPACs, which is a special purpose acquisition companies, which is essentially a, a, a blind IPO where you set up a, a company with cash and it acquires a private company and gets a reverse listing. I've oversimplified, but that's basically what it is. Um, and then the other one is uh, electric vehicles. Um, and this is some of the SPACs and the electric vehicles. And look, this is just January. They had this nah, up there doing well. This is Nikola, which is a car company, electric car company, which I don't think makes car, cars yet, um, but it's promised it will do. It's worth $70 billion. Tesla, we know about. Uh, Lee Auto is a real thing. Um, Forum Merger is a, is a SPAC that backed into some of these electric vehicles. Blink is, just like its name implies, one of these charging companies that has stations dotted around the country or around particular routes to take on. But look, this is the point, how much they've come down, 30, 40% corrections. Now, this is normally a kind of a good excess blow off and no one really gets hurt. Uh, banks aren't involved in these. There's not loans at fault. There's just a bunch of people who are buying a stock at overvalued prices and they're gonna get crushed. The only, so that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. That's sort of creative destruction at its best. Uh, the only issue you've got is that companies like Tesla, remember this company came in at number four in the S&P. 
So it came flying in at $800 billion market cap, and now it's off whatever it is, you know, 30%. That's going to hurt. So that's going to pull back some of the, you know, broader um, ability for the S&P to move ahead. Uh, but the three that I mentioned, the IPO, the SPACs broadly, as well as the electric vehicle stuff, um, these are excesses, Bitcoin probably as well, but they're not big enough, and this is the important, enough, important point, to sort of damage the rest of the economy. When you see a bank go belly up uh, or go, that's a real problem because of the leverage involved. I mean, the, the banks were leveraged 50 to one. These guys are not really leveraged. Um, uh, there'll be some equity shareholders who get wiped out, but bondholders and creditors won't get wiped out. And also these companies don't come to the government for, for financial aid. So you get a problem if there's a problem in the financial markets, financial industries, those insurance companies, banks, obviously most important. But it's not really an issue when you get uh, a crash in a sector like this. It's just just stand by the, go sit by the sidelines and wait, watch it play out. Um, I'm, it, it's still a thing. I saw GameStop was up, I don't know, a million percent overnight. Who cares? I mean, it's just, it's it's if it's if some people playing on the side. As long as you stay out of it and don't get caught in the in the whirlwind, um, it shouldn't have a bigger um, bigger problem with the market. Uh, and I'm very well aware of who's investing in those things and under what kind of margin debt. So um, I'd say expect markets to track sideways primarily because it comes such a long way. We've got the stimulus now. We want to see how that pairs out and who it goes to and you know, how it plays out in the real economy. We've got to monitor the opening rate. And so we've already got some indications here in California. We've got some restrictions which are lifting. You know, you know what to look for, the schools being a big one, um, the service sectors, and the kind of general progression back to a broader economy, broader opener, opening economy. The vaccine uh, rate and uh, how quickly we can get people inoculated and, uh, and moving freely. Uh, the stimulus, as I said, is sort of, okay, that's there now. We've got, we've got to see how that plays out over the next month or two. I think it's the, the, the outlook for that is very, I'm very optimistic for that. And then we've got to keep signs of the inflation. Um, yes, yes, it's, it's possible. Um, the, sell off of the bond market and the treasury inflation protected market is somewhat a recognition that inflation will get higher, but inflation was very low and the Fed wants to see it higher. Um, and I think there's a world away between moving from 1.5% inflation to 2.2 and maybe even 2.5 for a few months versus, you know, some rather reckless talk about runaway inflation and very irresponsible talk about hyperinflation, which, you know, outside of about five examples in the last hundred years is not a thing. Um, so I, I, I think we will see some uptick there, some interest rate sensitive market uh, um, uh, assets will, will react to that, you know, on the uh, positive side, inflation goes up, usually quite good for banks uh, in the short term. Um, because the interest rates go up, um, but it won't be necessarily good for treasuries. And we've lightened up on those. The consumer arrival will be very strong. Uh, see it play out, I think, in nearly all sectors. Uh, and the corporate sector remains very upbeat. Uh, I mean, we, we monitored the uh, fourth quarter uh, earnings calls uh, a lot. <laughs> and generally, companies have uh, are in pretty good shape. I mean, there are some which are going to come from a long way back. You know, the, a Carnival Cruise Line. It's gone from a dead stop and it's got to start filling up boats and moving those again. But, um, you know, a lot of companies outside of those types of sectors have um, cut some costs. Um, they've, they've kind of prepared themselves, I think, very well for, a, for an uptick. And we've seen this in sort of mid-cap stocks, manufacturing stocks, which have posted quite good outlooks and some of them are trading at, at record highs. They're not record earnings yet, but they're certainly the outlook. Uh, that they that they see is is pretty good, and I think the margin should remain strong. So that's what I've got. You know, um, it's it's um, as I said. I think uh, generally, the um, the a, a correction in the market is is a healthy thing. I think the inflation debate um, is also a healthy thing. I I, uh, I come out more on the side that we will see a little bit of uptick inflation without a fear of it uh, impairing risk assets. Um, but we'll have to watch that carefully over the next few months. Um, and uh, so with that, I just want to check if there's any questions. Once here we go. Um, uh, Bitcoin is trading at $53,000. Thoughts? Uh, 
I I really don't. I, I would be. Um, I I don't I don't really follow Bitcoin. I mean, I know what it is, but obviously, you know, it doesn't have any intrinsic value. It's like gold. I mean, it, it sits there on a ledger with a view that if there's a um, crash in in real money, the uh, money supply goes crazy, or the authorities devalue that somehow Bitcoin will hold its value. And it obviously has some transactional value as well. Um, so I, I think that anyone that accept, thinks that companies are going to buy it, I mean, I know Tesla did, but that, you know, you've got to factor in the Elon factor for that. Um, if, if you were a CFO and you had you bought Bitcoin, you'd have a real problem because you wouldn't know how to ask. It's an intangible asset. So you have to market to market, to market all the time, which means that your balance sheet's going to go bonkers. So I... I, I just don't know. I wouldn't buy it. I mean, I hear these stories about how, um, how power hungry the uh, computers are to, to do the mining. Um, it, you know, it could be a thing I can see it for transactional purposes, but I wouldn't know how to put a value on something which is essentially pumped up. Um, Non-fungible tokens. Uh, I put that into the same category and I'd say, I don't, I don't know an awful lot about those. Uh, uh, maybe I should. I'll try and get educated on those for next time. But um, I, th I think all of these things, which are, you know, ledger ledger based, and um, you know, are are still more in the realm of it could be something rather than you know something the start of something which I see as having a lot of value. Um, I, nice. Uh, Question from a good friend. Uh, what categories within consumer sector look bullish in Q2? Gosh. Um, the, I, I mean, I would say that, uh, the, you know, it's unlikely that companies like, you know, Amazon um, and Tesla, who are the monsters in that sector, will, will see a big uprush. I, I mean, I would put my bets on the stocks have rallied, uh, but, you know, the hotel, Disney's, um, movie theaters, that kind of thing. movie theaters, eh, maybe not so much with the streaming competition, but uh, but yeah, I think those those will come come back quite strongly. I mean, uh, you know, the market's expecting that, but uh, as you I know know, you know, hotels have very high operational leverage, uh, so um, you know, seventy five percent capacity versus eighty five percent capacity, it changes the bottom line by. A you know, a multiple factor, much bigger than that, just the top line, same with airlines. So I would still say that they, those are sectors which I would would still uh, would still look at. Because I mean, hotels have typically been a cyclical stock and I think they're gonna come back, you know, very, very sharp indeed. Um, are there ETFs that trade in travel and leisure? Um, yeah, there are, I can't think of a ticker offhand, but um, remind me to, um, either give you a call or, or send you an email. I know who this is. So um, I'll, I'll, I'll put one in. I'll give some thoughts to that. Um, and then uh, when do the T-bill rate goes up sharply like it did, what does that do for the total retirement price yield of the existing bonds we hold? And how is it different from commercial bonds versus treasury bonds? Basically, was this good or bad for our bond holdings? Um, okay, T-bill is just the short-term rate. So T-bills is zero out to a year and then their notes and then their and their notes all the way out to 10 years and then their bonds. So the, the recent uptick in there wasn't really an uptick in T-bill rates recently. Uh, I mean the two year as I mentioned was about 11 basis points. Um, but so that doesn't really affect but on the bond so on a 10 year bond I'll answer it as if you're asking around a 10 year bond which is what does that do to the total return? Well a 10 year bond started out the year with with a duration of eight or nine. And the yield went from one to 150. So all things being equal, that will mean that the price of a of a 10-year treasury falls by 4%, and you picked up half a year, you know, a quarter's year of, of income of 1%. So you were down 3.75%. In a 10-year treasury, we weren't that long. So uh, so uh, you know it would be less than that. Uh, generally um, for, for Corporate bonds, it depends not just on the rate, but how the spread is. Uh, so was it good or bad for our bond holdings over the last couple of months? In some areas, like the treasuries and some of the corporates, it was, I wouldn't say bad, but it was kind of sideways after a you know, cracking good 20, 
20. Uh, but then other bonds like the commercial mortgage-backed securities that we hold through the, um, through the uh, uh, River North Fund and, and the closed-end funds, it's been no, no difference. We're still running at about you know, 4 or 5% yield on those. And the same for the real estate, which we use as a fixed income substitute. So story's a bit mixed there, but the basic story is if you're holding just treasuries at the long end, hasn't been too good. Uh, but if you had a more diverse bond market, CMBS, closed-end funds, as well as mortgage-backed securities, uh, it was generally flat. Um, <laughs> uh, someone just giving me their opinion on the uh, on some very good market timing, which is great. <laughs> um, so thank you very much uh, for those questions. Oh, here's one. Any thoughts on real estate, such as offices with the work-from-home potential to continue even after more reopenings. We like real estate, but not just because of the office side. Um, for those of you that have followed us in real estate, we like other sectors like um, you know, server, um, storage, uh, senior housing, government buildings, uh, student, student housing, a few others that might not seem specialized uh, retail like, um, like uh, uh, labs and, and, and pharma work, things like that. But I, my own feeling is that uh, prime office real estate will bounce back pretty quickly. Uh, I mean, I've kept up with New York. I don't know about San Francisco in the bigger scheme of things. It's not as important as places like New York. But, um, but there, people are coming back. And I think, you know, the head of Goldman Sachs said it right out the other day. He said, work from home isn't working. You know, people are not getting the mentoring. People are not getting the training. People are not picking up the nuances of the offices. They're not figuring out how to you know, work and operate together. This work from home isn't going isn't gonna to be the new normal. So now in some industries, it might be. And I think what it offers is a lot more people flexibility you know, to say, well, I'd like to do it two days a week or three days a week or something like that. And that's all fine. But I think countering that, you think, oh, well, then that means generally less real estate. But the guys that we've talked to remind me that say, well, think about an average, you know, office and how cramped people were together. And if you joined an, a, you know, a bank as I did in the early '80s, and how much space you had, and then you went into a, you know, a moderately concentrated, uh, you know, high density bank uh, in the last ten years, you know, people were just crammed together. So I think that the, you know, the people are going to spread out more. It's what we're doing in our own office. You know, it's like before we had twenty people in us in this size space. Now there are going to be twenty people. In this size space, so um, we're not don't need to take more space, but you know, but people will be uh, will be uh, in a more spread apart, and I think that's that's what's going to happen. So I'd, I'm I'm not really uh, I'm not not bearish on the real estate side at all. Um, yeah, there'll be more some home potential, but then uh, people are going to want to see safety standards and space standards and the ability to move around and walk around um, in their offices, and that will probably keep the real estate demand quite high. Also, real estate supply. I mean, I mean, no Salesforce said they're going to move out, but you know, I'll believe that when I see it. Um, I mean, I still think you know San Francisco real estate is going to be uh, in in pretty high demand, mainly because they don't build enough of it. So, yeah, we're generally kind of like that real estate uh, space. I think some of the doom and gloom was overstated uh, about a year ago. Well, thanks very much, everybody. Um, uh, I have to read the. Um, the uh, disclosure, but otherwise, if you don't want to stay on for that, and I perfectly understand if you don't, um, I'll catch you next time. And please send us any questions if you um, think of something that we didn't cover today. Okay, um, here's a disclosure. Discussions of the investment, investment strategy, research, investment process around Janikowski are the date indicators of the date of this presentation, subject to change without notice, charts of the straight throughout this presentation may update periodically. We have no obligation to provide Revise assessments in the event of change circumstances. We cannot assure that the types of investment mentioned in this presentation will produce intended results or outperform any other investments in the future. We reserve the right to change our investment perspectives and outlook without notice. As market deficient dictate and as additional information becomes available, diversification does not protect an investor from market risk, does not ensure profit or information is subject to unintentional efforts, unintentional errors, omissions, and changes without notice. All sources are from facts unless otherwise noticed. While we gather this information from resources we believe to be reliable, we cannot guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any statements or numerical data in this presentation. References to an individual security should be 
not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell that security. The securities notice in this presentation are only several of the successful and unsuccessful investments by Brown Janikowski. They will represent all the securities we have purchased, sold, or recommended. The next returns include reinvested dividends and interest, but do not reflect commissions or transaction costs. Mutual fund returns include reinvested dividends and capital gains distributions. Mutual fund returns are net of fund expenses, however, do not reflect Brown Janikowski's fees. Please read the prospectus carefully. Uh, before investing or sending money, past once, no guarantee of future results. We may reference various hypothetical investment illustrations, illustration purposes only, not for investment recommendations, not guarantee indication of future results. 